Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Mike Morrow, Ron Hayes, and Jason Loftus, and Mark Raycroft. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed Podcast, coming to you from northern Montana today on location. We are in a campground, so if you hear a little bit of ambient noise, um, just try to give us a little bit of grace here. It's <laughs> fairly quiet. We're on the uh, Missouri River, and it is a beautiful scene right now with the uh, fall colors changing. The cottonwoods are turning completely yellow. There's a little mix of greens and yellows right now. Beautiful still day, and I'm here with Stan Tequila from Nature Smart. Stan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Ron. How about you today? It's such a beautiful day out here, isn't it? Oh, I can't complain. Yeah. It is much rather be here than in an office anywhere. <laughs> or anywhere. <laughs> or, or anywhere else, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. Um, all right, Stan. So this is a question that uh, we ask everyone on the <laughs> podcast. Uh-oh. What is your favorite ever outdoor experience? Well, um, every time I'm out is my favorite time for one. How about that for a generic answer? <laughs> um, but I do have, um, a, several really good memorable, uh, and one time, uh, I did a trip to Yellowstone in the wintertime and, um, we're me and two other guys were going to go. And I had a friend of mine who wanted to go as a woman. And, um, these other guys were like, um, uh, Sorry, that was me. Um, so we were going to go. It was me and two other guys, and they wanted, um, and I had a friend of mine who wanted to come along. It was a woman, and they said, no, no girls. And I was like, what? You know, they're like, no, we don't want any girls coming along. I was like, you guys are kidding me, right? And they're like, nope, nope. So three of us went out to Yellowstone, me and these two guys had one of the world's worst weeks ever. Sunshine, you know, every day, and no snow, no nothing. And it was just, you know, awful. Came home. And I had promised her that I would take her to Yellowstone. And she'd, she'd never had been to Yellowstone before. She, uh, uh, born and raised in Poland and always had heard about, um, Yellowstone, always wanted to go. And this would be her first trip in the wintertime. So I got back, I was back less than a week and I'd promised her I'd take her. So I said, let's go. So the two of us turned around, drove back out here and, uh, out to Yellowstone area. And we, one evening, um, Right in uh, uh, in Lamar near Picnic, the uh, wolves had killed a bison. It was you know quite a ways off the road, but it was a decent photographable range. And there was a, a single coyote feeding on the carcass. And the wolves were nowhere to be found. And it was February. It was cold, and it was you know getting dark. And um, everybody was heading for town and you know calling it a day. And me and my partner and uh, two guys, uh, Oliver and Evo from. Um, uh, Gulo Productions. They were working for the BBC at the time, um, doing a thing. Four of us were there just waiting and, uh, they had fallen asleep in their car and I was sitting in my truck. We're just, you know, scoping the area, looking and all of a sudden we see the 10 wolves coming down the river valley, heading towards the carcass. And they stayed hidden in the valley the entire way until they popped up right on the carcass and caught this coyote kind of like dead to rights on their kill. So the coyote looked up, saw the 10 wolves and immediately, well, 
let me back up. So we see him coming in. So of course we jump out right away, get our cameras all set up. And I go and bang on Oliver and Evo's door and say, come on, you know? And so four of us are there. We're ready to go. And the wolves jump up. They catch the coyote right on their carcass. The coyote takes one look at these wolves, turns, doesn't look left, doesn't look right, doesn't do anything, just turns and starts running straight at us. Full bore. Ten wolves chasing him. The coyote ran right up to us, ran right behind us, within feet of us, and laid down and curled up with his tail over his nose, 20 feet behind us, <laughs> with 10 wolves running up to us, running straight at us, and then started running circles around us within, you know, 100 feet of us. 10 wolves running around and around and around. The coyote's laying there. And, and there, you can just see the look in these eyes of these wolves. They were like, we, how do we get to that coyote? You know, and they, they didn't want to get near us at all. And so I was like, we're, nobody said a word. We're just shooting and shooting and shooting, surrounded by wolves. They're going around in circles and around in circles. Finally, the coyote gets up and walks over to our right. And he's walking, he's maybe 20 feet away from us. And he's just walking along, which draws all the wolves off to our right. So all of them are there and you can just see them all like, come here, little coyote, <laughs> you know, we want to talk to you type of thing. And then all of a sudden the coyote turns and literally runs almost between our tripods onto the road behind us. And once again, for the second time, leaves us standing between 10 wolves and him leaving. And he's running down the road as fast as he can. And so we're shooting away like unbelievable. And, uh, uh, you know, Oliver and Evo are doing video and we're doing stills and it was just holy mackerel. So the wolves kind of realized, well, they're not gonna be able to get this guy. So they walked down to the creek that kind of comes right through there. It's really just one little opening and they all get together and they all start howling together. So I got these amazing images oh, of them wow. howling and all like that. And we were like, holy mackerel. Five minutes later, a car comes down the road, stops up, stops and says, what's going on? And they go, we just saw this coyote running down the road. It running so fast, it ran right through the stream, you know? And we said, well, you want to know why? And so just hit the button on the back of the camera and showed them, showed them the pictures of these wolves. And they were like, holy mackerel. Remember, this is the first time for my partner being in Yellowstone and the first time ever even seeing a wolf. And remember, those guys wouldn't let her go on this trip, right? So we go back to town. We have a great night, you know, in the morning, we're heading back into the park. We stopped at a little convenience store. This, that store's not there anymore. And, um, and the teller says, um, Hey, uh, heading in the park? I said, yeah, yeah, we're going in. And they go, did you hear what happened yesterday? And we were like, no, what, what happened? Do we have no idea? And they're like, well, apparently there was this coyote on a kill. And then 10 wolves came up and proceeded to tell us our story about the wolves running circles around us. And it was just one of those most gratifying moments because it was one of those things where it's like, wow, this is what you come to Yellowstone for, but never happens. Right. And so it was truly one of the most remarkable experiences ever. And um, that's insane. Yeah. And whenever I, people say things like, well, weren't you afraid? It's like afraid of a wolf. Really? <laughs> you know, yeah. I, you know, I don't think there's been a documented. No. Attack in. Right. Quite a while. I mean, there, there have been, of course, but very, Yellowstone, very few. Yeah, very few. There's the, if you Google, you know, wolf attacks, 90% of them are going to say they're, you know, they're all in Europe. And if you read the story a little bit further, they turn out to be werewolves. 
So, uh, and then there's a couple of cases here in the United States. There's one in Alaska. One in Alaska, yeah. And then there's one in Minnesota. And the one in Minnesota was, uh, there was a wolf who had a broken jaw and missing teeth. And he was, he was hanging around a campground trying to make a living in the campground. And he, um, uh, there was a young boy who was sleeping by a fire in a sleeping bag. Mm. And the wolf came up and tried to like take the boy, you know, and like drag him. He thought he was like a piece of meat laying on the ground, try to drag him across the ground. And of course, as soon as the kid woke up, the wolf ran away and they considered that an attack. And it's like, well, that's hardly an attack. It's a, it's a wolf yeah. trying to scavenge something that he thought was dead laying there on the ground. So, but anyhow, that's so, an amazing experience. That, yeah. And it, it just goes to show you how smart a coyote is. Oh, Those and, and wolves as well. Those yeah. canids are just very intelligent creatures and, yeah. He used you guys like a... They're ridiculously... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here's a... Get a this is, get an example of some of the pictures from there, too. Like Amazing. that. I got it here. I got to show you. Uh, I, unfortunately, was shooting my 800 millimeter. So when you got 10 wolves running straight at you, uh, they don't all fit in the frame. <laughs> yeah. So take a look at these. I'll show you here. We'll put these in the show notes so y'all can see as well. Yeah. So that... Oh, is getting closer. And then here they are running around, circles around us. That's amazing. <laughs> Look at the guard hairs on this guy. It just that. goes to show you, you just have to be there. Yeah, and they're there howling. I told you, we went down by the creek and howled. And they're there, and they're playing with chunks of ice. They're picking up ice and playing with it like that. And they're just walking off. They're all dejected because wow. they didn't get their coyote. So Yeah, we'll get some of these in the show notes so you guys can see the the outcome of that encounter and man, what a story yeah. that, that may be one of the best ones we've had. Oh, good. good. <laughs> I, it was, it's truly after 40 years, it was like, that's still my go-to like holy mackerel moment, you know? And I don't know if she realized, well, I know she realizes now, but that was such an amazing, by the way, on our way home, we called those guys on the uh, drive that, home. Anyway, yeah, so thank you. We said, gotta rub that in. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> Really appreciate that. That was awesome. <laughs> uh, that's great. Yeah. The reason that I wanted to visit with Stan is I, I was introduced to you by Craig Miller. Yes. Who's a biologist uh, for, he's a federal biologist with the yep. BLM, BLM up in Northern Montana. And uh, Craig is a guy that we've gone back and forth, actually started visit with him, visiting with him a little bit uh, because he is a swift fox photographer. He loves those little guys about as much as I do, mm -hmm. if not more. And uh, Craig was telling me about you and just the multifaceted way that you bring this wildlife photography career yeah. into uh, fruition. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the biggest question that we get asked ever. What does it take to be a professional? And I thought it'd be really interesting for our listeners to hear exactly mm -hmm. just how many things that you do to make this work. Yeah. It, you know, it's interesting that. You put it that way too. <clears throat> um, what I've found is the only way I can make a living is by doing many different things. I actually sat down the other day and counted it up and I do nine different things to make one living. So nine different revenue streams that bring in that, you know, affords me to keep going, you know, and pay the bills mm -hmm. and put food on the table. That's basically what it does. So for me, you can't just do 
I mean, it'd be nice, wouldn't it? I mean, it's, I mean, sure. So let's just say somebody's got one job, you know, and that's their job and that's how they make a living. In order to be in this field, in the wildlife photography, videography, you know, audio, there's not, you have to do more than just one thing. You have to do a bunch of different things just to make it. And it is, um, I guess I'd be an example of that. Um, I've, I've been doing this for, um, uh, coming up on just about 40 years of doing the whole, you know, trying to do it, trying to do it all type of thing. And it's been very, uh, uh, interesting to see the changes, not only in technology, but in all the kind of access to wildlife, the amount of people in wildlife, amount of people who are interested in wildlife and see all those changes too over the last four years. It's been a big sea change. It really it's has. It's kind of like the area that we're at right now. Yes. It used yeah. to be pretty private and now it's, uh, yeah. it's a spectacle. Yeah. There's lots of, lots of people come to, uh, you know, we see wildlife and people love wildlife, but, uh, uh, you know, like in a lot of the big parks, we're kind of starting to love it to death. And, um, yeah. you know, Yellowstone's a good example of that. Too. Mike says that often. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So just for, for our listeners to get to know you, how did you yeah. start out in wildlife photography? How did you get your start? So I got my start, um, believe it or not, when I was a young kid, I was maybe 10 or 12 years old. I wanted, even at that young age, I was convinced I could write, I wanted to write nature books about nature, about wildlife. And so I took a three ring binder and, you know, just standard ruled paper in it and started writing in it, you know, long handing it. Then I would take pictures and um, with those pictures, I would, you know, have them developed and then glue them into there to illustrate what it was. And now some of the things I would just draw. So I would do all the illustrations too. Mm -hmm. And then it, it, when I really kind of got serious later on in life about it, I uh, realized that my artistry wasn't probably enough. So the camera <laughs> was really a kind of necessity. So, um, and then it was, so that was something I really always wanted to do. And then lo and, lo and behold, about, uh, about 35 years or so ago, um, I got an opportunity to write my very first book. Um, there was a publisher that was just starting out at the time. And, um, a friend of mine said, uh, I'd written a book on wild edible plants and, um, and this friend of mine said, Hey, there's this new company starting, um, called Adventure Publications in Cambridge, Minnesota. And they said, Hey, you know, give them a call. I said, you're not supposed to call publishers. You're supposed to write them a query letter. It's a very specific type of letter. You're supposed to write them stating all these things, blah, 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 blah. And so and they said, no, no, I know these people just call them. So I did. And, uh, they said, and they said, yeah, we'll meet with you. So I met with them and, um, they were just starting out. They had maybe one or two, um, uh, authors on board. And what they did was they said, I told them the idea of the book and I said, I'll, um, you know, they said, when do you think you could have this done? And I said, well, I actually got the, <laughs> the book done already. And remember, this is pre-computer time. So I had typed it all on a typewriter and it was like a 150 page paper manuscript. They said, when do you think I can have this done? And I just reached under the table and I pulled it out and set it down. I said, it's right here. I said, send me a contract. And they said, okay. Having so, a complete manuscript is better than having a polished resume. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> With somebody that's just starting. Exactly. Up, but, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I, I got to realize my lifelong dream of writing a nature book and having it published. I was thrilled. I was just thought that was just amazing. And then nobody said, stop. So I kept going and now here we are 35 years later and I'm just over 200 books that I've written in the last uh, 35 years. And it's just been, 
it's just been great. It's been nonstop work. I mean, my my personal life, my work life, I, you cannot tell the difference. They're the same. Mm-hmm. And I just continue to work and do, you know, all that. And I, I enjoy that. Now, by training, I'm a wildlife biologist. I went to the University of Minnesota and um, and got my degree. I have a double degree from uh, the U of M. And um, so I'm not a writer, but it turns out that I'm actually like a big part of my living is comes from writing, even though I'm terrible at writing. Thank God for editors, you know. <laughs> and but I the difference I always like to say, because I can't tell you how many times, Ron, people come up to me and say, I've got because they know, you know, I mean, 200 books. How many other people have done 200 books? And they go, I I have an idea for a book. I want to write a book. I want to, you know, like, and I always tell them, look, the only difference between me and you is that I finished my book. Mm-hmm. I, I started it and then I finished it. That's the only difference. You just have to sit down and do it. You just have to keep your butt in your chair and write it and finish it. That's the only difference. I mean, I, I got no magic gift for writing or anything like that. I'm a wildlife biologist, but I do it. I get the job done and I, I see it. I complete it. And that is, that's the main difference, I think, between me and anybody else is just getting the work done. You know, you can talk about it all day long, but until you sit down and do it, then it's a, that's a big difference. Right. So it's just a conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So most people may know me from my field guides. So I've done every state in the nation except for Nevada and Hawaii. So if you're in birds of Florida, if you're in Florida, I have the birds of Florida for you, Ron, you know, the birds of Wyoming. Uh, it's a field guide that's, uh, set up by color coding. So if you see a red bird, you look in the red section. If you see a green bird, you look in the green section, that type of thing. So, and these are very popular books. They're found all over the country and, um, uh, they're really kind of my bread and butter. That's what I do. Mm-hmm. And then I followed up those, um, bird books with, um, uh, field guides for mammals which was really fun. I got a million stories on field guide for mammals um, and um, a uh, field guide for the trees, um, a field guide for wildflowers, reptiles and amphibians, and um, even uh, cactus. So, so I do a lot of field guides. That's kind of the lion's share of what I do. Plus so I do the, the field guide for yeah. trees in Wyoming is yeah, four, four trees. Four, four pages long. <laughs> yeah, four, yeah, four, yeah, it's five trees total. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And three of them are cottonwoods. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Now you work all the way down into Florida. So that, that's got to be a little bit different when you're putting together a tree book. Yeah. So trees of Florida would be, I, I started it and it turns out there's over 450 native trees for Florida and over 500 introduced trees. So it'd be over a thousand trees, you know, about a little over a thousand trees uh, <laughs> that you would, I would have to do for that book. So it's like, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. That's a lifetime project. That yeah. would be literally a lifetime project. That one book would be. So yeah. a lot of the Eastern states uh, where um, the population, you know, population centers are located uh, are, um, you know, they have states, um, I'm from Minnesota. We have about uh, uh, right around 100, uh, 110 native uh, species of trees and about 40 or so introduced trees. You know, like, for example, um, you know, Colorado blue spruce grows all over the place, but it's a it's a non-native tree, you know. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I categorize those field guides, you know, via native and non-native and things like that, too. So so that's what people most know me for. I also have a bunch of um, uh, coffee table books and probably have 20, 25 different coffee table books out there. And then um, a lot of books on how to feed birds, how to attract birds. Um, and I do audio CDs too. I do a lot of audio CDs on learning the bird calls, 
how do you identify birds by their sound? Because if once you can identify a bird by sound, it makes birding so much easier. Mm-hmm. So you can go and, you know, you can be walking along. I mean, and um, you don't have to see the bird. If you just hear it, you know, you know, you know exactly what it is. In fact, sometimes it's a lot easier to identify the sound than it would be to identify the, the, the actual, actual bird. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Especially all the, well, we call them LBJs. Yeah, little brown jobs. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there, there's just little subtle differences that they're tough. Differentiate the species. Yeah. But if and you hear I, them sing, then you know exactly what yeah. it is. As soon as you hear them sing, yeah. it's like, yeah, you know exactly what it is. And I will say that Stan and I just met in person yesterday. Yeah. For the first time. Yeah. However, I do have that, that is the only tequila that I consume is that little. <laughs> Birds of Wyoming field guide. So <laughs> I'm so glad you I, have that. I will. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, I always find it amazing how many people. I, I always like to joke and say I'm the most famous person you've never heard of. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm on so That's many. Fact. I'm on so many people's shelves because they pick mm-hmm. up a field guide for whatever state they're in and they don't realize it. I never look at the author of the field guides either. You know, yeah. so I get it. You know, that makes sense to me. But to me, it's not about me. It's all about the education. As a naturalist, you know, I'm a, an educator, an educator about the great big world around us. It could be about anything from plants to the birds to the mammals to, you know, insects, you name it. Uh, that's what I'm, I'm into the whole thing. So, yeah. And the best part of that is you never stop learning either. As, no. As an educator, you're always learning, always learning yeah. behavior. And, yeah. you know, that's, uh, people get tired of the saying it probably, but it's the most critical part of being a successful wildlife photographer is yeah. observation and, and learning animal behavior. Yeah. And that's where, that's the thing with me, um, my um, being a wildlife biologist, I think that makes me a little bit better at what I'm doing because a lot of times it helps me to identify the behavior of what's going on, um, identify, uh, predict what they're about to do so mm-hmm. you can get ready for it and so on and so forth. More importantly, as a wildlife biologist, it keeps, I want to keep the wildlife safe. And so, mm-hmm. um, I don't like pushing any boundaries. You know, I mean, that's a question you guys probably get all the time too is, um, you know, what's the most dangerous situation you've been in? You know, they're always into the danger part. And I always respond by saying, well, you know, as a professional, <laughs> I don't want to be putting myself in danger. My job is to not put myself in danger, use a long lens stand as far back as possible and get natural behaviors. That's what you want. You don't want to be able to be pushing on them and trying to, you know, change behaviors and things like that. You want to be able to do it in a way that is um, uh, catching natural behaviors. That's very important to me. And, and probably the most dangerous part of wildlife photography comes from the travel. It comes from the conditions that you're in, yeah. not the wildlife. Yeah. And you've mitigated quite a bit of that. So let's talk about your setup. A yeah, bit. let's do that. So you've got, not only do you have, a, you know, the vault in your vehicle that you have yeah. customized for your needs and your equipment needs, yeah. but also you've done some things to your vehicle that kind of keep you a little bit safer yeah. while you're out there on your own. Because it's all about safety. It's all about being safe and not putting yourself in harm's way. Right. Um, and so what I did is I customized my truck so that I've got uh, extra lights in the grill so that when I'm dark roads at night and there's deer and there's, you know, whatever, elk and bison and, you know, you don't want to run into those things, that helps tremendously. Um, I I run a uh, an air pump 
under my hood that I can inflate my tires with. So I carry a complete uh, tire repair kit, the plugs, to be able to plug any leaks. And then I have an air pump that I can fill up my tires because these are massive tires on these trucks. And um, to be able to fill that up within, you know, 10 to 15 seconds, I can have that thing filled up. So um, that's that's important. I also have a dual battery system, so uh, which is really nice because if you run down the first battery, you know you left the light on or whatever, or just you're working at night. Uh, I have a second battery, so I can push a button and the second battery will boost the first battery and give it like an automatic jump. I can jump myself basically, and then it'll start it up and uh, go from there. Because there's times where, like when I'm doing winter things, I can um, park my truck. It can be well below zero. Remember, I'm from. Minnesota, you know, it's mm -hmm. darn cold and, um, be away from my truck for four or five days. And then at that point, you know, I come back and there's my truck, a frozen truck, you know, and it's got to start. I mean, cause your life depends yeah. upon it at that point. So it's really important to be able to do that. Then from there, I, uh, I set up my truck with a, a um, kind of a, a vault system that locks shut so I can uh, carry all my camera gear safely with me at all times. That's very important. Um, so that if anybody's, you know, then we can mess with it and things like that. So it's a, it's a nice workstation right here. We've got it set up. Look at us. We got yeah. this set up. We got a recorder sitting here. That's a nice way to do this. Picture um, in the show notes of the, the shelf that he's got in the back. That's, it's a multi-purpose shelf that folds out and gives you a nice workspace yeah. in the back or a cooking space or yeah. whatever you need. <laughs> exactly. In the field, right? Yeah. Cause you know, just changing lenses and changing, you know, whatever you're going to be doing. It's a nice place to be able to do that. And I carry all my tools in here too. So, cause yeah, I have all that stuff with you. Cause if you're on the road for, you know, weeks on end and something happens, you got to be able to do that, uh, that stuff. So then mm -hmm. I have extra lights in the back so I can, you know, if I'm backed into a campsite or something like that, I can flip on the lights. I can illuminate the whole area. I, I carry a boat around with me a lot, a trailer, a boat. And so, hooking up the boat at night. These lights really are helpful for that type of thing. So it's a really a nice uh, uh, thing to do. Yeah, it's a great setup. Mm -hmm. I've never seen one this customized, to be honest. Yeah, it's it's a good way to, um, you know, well, if you're going to do this professionally, and this is like my third truck that I've been gone through over the years, I buy a truck new and then I run it down to the ground. The last truck I had was a, um, a GMC um, uh, Yukon, and I put 500,000 mm -hmm. miles on it. And, um, so, which I thought was, you know, awesome, <laughs> you know, and yeah. the thing ran great. I, I do maintenance on it all the time. I always make sure I fix everything all the time so that it doesn't start to deteriorate over time. But those, that's really important. Your truck is, my truck is my tool. It's another right. tool in the tool bag of, of things. And that's really important to have. So. So we talked about the, uh, the books. Yeah. And that's kind of the first prong. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. First prong of a nine prong series. <laughs> yeah. So you also do some workshops. Yes. And you do personal and you guide for another, for another company, correct? Right. Right. So, so tell us about the personal workshops yeah. that you do. The personal workshops, uh, uh, anybody can find us at naturesmart.com, but I do, um, uh, loon, uh, common loon photography. So I'm based in Minnesota and I live on a lake. And so I've got, uh, and I've, I have two different boats, both boats I've customized kind of like my truck so that, uh, they're all set up to do, um, you know, taking tours out. So I take people out. I have a pontoon boat that I've customized with electric anchors in the front right corner and the back left corner. And that way, when we move, when we kind of motor up to a, uh, a pair of loons, I can put down the anchors so that it holds the boat in perfect 
position so the photographers can lay down. So I've, I've got no front on it. So no in those walls and things like that. So you can lay down, be almost at water's level and be able to capture these images of, of common loons. I do them in the month of June because that's when the babies hatch. And uh, for the first 10 days of life, uh, baby loons will ride on the backs of uh, adults. And that's the, you know, that's the shot everybody wants, right? Mm -hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. Everybody wants that baby loon, you know, snoozing on the back of an adult or riding along and things like that. So what I do is um, nearly every day in June, I don't go out on Saturdays because there's just too many people, but uh, nearly every day in June, people can book either a full day or a half day tour with me someday. Some people that travel long distances, they kind of book three or four days because they want to make sure that they get it because I can guarantee you the birds but what I can't guarantee you is the weather <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and that weather, it can be a real, can be really tricky. So if you got good weather, um, I'm bringing people right to these loons, uh, on the one lake that I work on, I have 12 pairs of loons, uh, all nesting at the same time. So we can find them. Some of them are still sitting on eggs. So we can get pictures of, of, you know, nesting loons. We got pictures of little tiny babies that have just hatched and they're riding in the backs. And then we have others that are have big babies because they got there first and they hatched uh, right away. Mm -hmm. So it's a whole variety variety of things and there's not very many people who do loon photography workshops uh, I'm one of the few so um, and we don't do just loons we also do yellowhead blackbirds we do uh, American white pelicans bald eagles um, and uh, I have a bonus bird that I always like to call and that's the redneck grebe redneck grebes are very closely related to loons and they also have babies uh, at the same time and their babies are black and white they're zebra striped and so they're cute as little devils and they're just amazing and they also ride in the backs of the parents and so uh, when we get that that is like people lose their minds when they get baby you know grebes riding in the back yeah, yeah for sure. and almost always get that on my on my tours and so people can go to my website again and check that and um and they i schedule people it's not like a big group um i oftentimes try to keep people to two to three on the boat that's it um mm -hmm. i i can take up at six but uh some people just want to be on on their own other people don't mind being put in with other people so i do my workshops a lot differently than like say okay it's you know June 5th through the 6th, and that's it, period the end. And there's six people going, and, that, you know, I, mine are very different. Mine are very personalized. I, you know, I, I take you out and take you right to those loons, and I take you right to the, you know, the situations. It really works out very, very well. So uh, the second thing I do um, on my own is the uh, Western Grebes. So Western mm -hmm. Grebes uh, is another area that I have. Again, I have a, another customized boat that I trailer to this lake, and it's three miles out into a lake. So it's quite a distance out. So it's not like you can just jump in a kayak and, you know, paddle out there because, you know, <laughs> it's big water. And um, so we get the Western Grebes. They also have babies riding on their back, and they feed their babies while the babies are on the back of the other adult. One adult's fishing, you know, feeds the other. And that's really kind of great. So, so it's common loons, Western Grebes. And the third thing I do is American Black bears. So I live in Minnesota and in northern Minnesota is a lot of black bears. And so I lead a workshop. In fact, just a week before we recorded this here, um, I had a, a group of seven that we went uh, up to northern Minnesota for for American black bears. And that is just a great workshop because um, we're photographing anywhere from 20 to 25 bears per day. Um, and they're, you know, doing anything from little cubs to the big boars. And really, it's a, an amazing experience uh, to do that. So that's what I do on my own. Those three workshops are on my own. And then I'm also um, work for, um, excuse me, Nature's Images out of the UK. So this is the largest photographic um, 
a tour company in Europe and they do tours all over the place. And what they do is they send me groups. So I do a, a month in, in Yellowstone in the wintertime and uh, they send me two different groups. And, um, and so we, we do the interior and we do the, you know, the Northern Valley. And then uh, when that group is done, they fly home and then a new group flies in and I take out a second uh, uh, group. So back to back tours that way. Um, and then uh, they also send me people in June. Uh, and we do three days of uh, loons and we do three days of black bears in June for the Europeans, mm-hmm. uh, which is funny, too, because I oftentimes they'll say things like, yeah, yeah, I signed up for this workshop because I really want to photograph the black bears. I'll just kind of have to tolerate the loons. And by the way, the Europeans don't call them loons. They call them divers. And uh, so they said, you know, so we'll, we'll put up with the divers you know, just so I can get to the black bears. And then at the end of the trip, I always ask him, so how was it? And they go between the two hands down the divers are the best they because the opportunity is just really kind of unmatched you know what we do with these or what i do with these loons i'm kind of well known for uh, a kind of a signature picture of the sun setting and you get a silhouetted loon family so you got the adults and two babies in the sun setting you got this beautiful scene orange Mm -hmm. water and all that stuff that's kind of what i'm known for um and then uh, the third thing i do with the uh, nature's images is i do a week uh a trip in Florida for Florida birds. So we, we do a whole big tour around, you know, driving around, um, all of, um, Eastern and, uh, Western, and, you know, the Gulf side, the Atlantic side and, and everything in between. And so with those, those are, like I said, those are, um, I'm just, I'm basically a, a guide at that point, I, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, they, they send me people from mainly from, from England, but also Scotland, Ireland, and um uh, germany i've had them as far away as singapore too so mm-hmm. that's so that's kind of fun uh time um and it that's that's well well worth the time there so that's kind of fun so again different revenue stream and that's another thing you got to do to make a living you know extra things you got to do to make a living with it so yeah and you referenced i believe your your syndicated column also right yeah so i write a syndicated newspaper column i've been writing this column for a little over 25 years it's funny it, again it was one of those things where um i one of my local papers where i live um i had published my whatever 10th book or something like that and they were doing a little you know you've seen those stories before the local paper writes you know local guy writes book you know that type of story <laughs> mm-hmm. and they did a story on me and, and all that stuff which was all great and then the editor called me afterwards he said hey he says do you think you could write a nature column uh for uh, 10 weeks during the summer in which uh you know basically when nobody's reading the paper and, you know, we can print my paper like that. <laughs> and, uh, for 10 weeks, I said, 10 weeks. Yeah. Uh, I said, sure. He says, I mean, can you find enough things to, you know, write about in 10 weeks? And I said, it's nature. It's endless. You know, <laughs> of course right. I could do that. So I started writing that column. <laughs> and again, nobody said stop. So I kept going. Here we are 25 years later. And that column is now syndicated across about 30 papers goes across nine states and has three quarters of a million readers. So I write, <clears throat> I write a bi-weekly. So it's every other week column. And I've been doing it, like I said, for 25 years. It's like having a term paper due <laughs> every two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> it's 750 words. And I always have a, at least one photo with it. So I try to do like from whatever trip I'm on or whatever I'm photographing, that's what I write about. So mm-hmm. no matter what it is, but it's always all wildlife. And I don't, 
Um, I, so I work for a couple of these uh, hunting and fishing uh, things, and I don't hunt or fish. Um, I'm the non-game guy, mm-hmm. and so um, so I write all about non-game things, and and uh, which is, there's really a need for that. Uh, non-game stuff is very important. Absolutely. So yeah, there's yeah. not percentage-wise, there's mm-hmm. tenfold, if not a hundredfold, more non-game oh, species yeah. that you know that are managed mm-hmm. by every state agency than. Yeah. than our game species yeah. so yeah absolutely it's critical mm-hmm. yeah so th- so that's another one of the prongs on the prong of making a living life <laughs> um i and also have about your your images sorry yeah. i didn't mean Go to ahead. cut you off but you know as far as those prongs i re- i understand that you know things have changed quite a bit with periodicals how has that affected your your image sales yeah so image sales are that's an interesting thing because a lot of people I hear from a lot of people too, they just want to be able to sell pictures enough to, you know, pay for my equipment or sell images enough just to pay for the trip or something. And I always say, mm-hmm. great, good luck, go for it. You should try, you should do it, you know, <laughs> but I'm saying it not in a derogatory good luck. I'm saying it in a yes, go for it yeah. because it's, it's really impossible. So, you know, I've been uh, doing this for professionally for, uh, just about 40 years. And it used to be that, um, I about 25 to about 40% of my income used to be from photo sales. And there used to be time where, you know, you could get pretty decent money for a good single shot. You can get, you know, some pretty good sales there. And then, uh, of course, digital hit in, uh, you know, 2000, 2001 or so. And, um, the market just fell apart at that point. So right now, uh, image sales are represent probably anywhere from five two to maybe five percent of my sales it's and sure. how much of that is stock and how much of it is print sales that's uh yeah so prints are almost non-existent i don't put any effort into prints um it's not something i do i don't do fine art type of thing i my hat's off to people who do the fine art and all that that's a hard thing to do and i'm i'm glad they do it but it's something that's very difficult i find personally very very difficult to do and i also find it hard that people um you know look at your images in a different light they look at it you know will this look good on my wall as opposed to is this a good image <laughs> you right. know so uh, so print sales are are pretty minimal if i sell 12 12 prints a year i'm doing pretty darn good mm-hmm. um and so i have uh but i have agencies i have like four different agencies that sell my uh, sell my images and so and um those images those agencies uh I not only do images, but I also do video, video clips too. So I do video clips and send those into the agencies. And those, that again, even with the agencies is probably less than 10%. So mm-hmm. I don't, used to be, I could make a pretty good living on selling images. I just, I don't know anybody who can do that anymore. Yeah. What were you saying before you could, you could sell an individual slide for? Yeah. I recall many times of selling an exclusive uh, use of a, you know, an exclusive meaning they buy the slide outright and, you know, it'd be $2,000. And that was on the low end. It could be upwards of $5,000 for one slide. And, um, you know, these days, if you know, people don't want to pay anything for a picture. They right. want you to give it to them for free, you know, which we don't need to get into that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> We've had it. We, yeah, we all get that. You know, Mark, we all get that Mark, email. A uh, big part of his income has been to periodicals in the past. Mm-hmm. And, and he's commented several times about, you know, everybody wants everything for free now. And so, yeah. 
Yeah. And I don't blame them. I get it. I understand. Yeah. But, um, they say, I always hear that too, saying, you know, well, well, we'll give you a photo credit. And I'll say, well, as soon as I can figure out how to feed my family on a photo credit, <laughs> we'll go with that. Until then, yeah, for sure. It, it ain't going to happen. So, mm-hmm. And then you do some work also for the Nature Conservancy. Correct? Yeah. So I do a, I work with a, a team of guys. Um, and, uh, we do these little mini documentaries for Nature Conservancy. And they may be something along the lines of like soil conservation or, um, uh, carbon sequestration or, uh, you know, just a lot of different things. And they're highlighting different people. And so then what they have is they've got a, a, a uh, kind of a a role camera guy who does the the talking head you know they interview the person then they have a couple of guys who do b-roll uh shots and uh usually it's agricultural ranching uh farming that type of thing and uh, so then these guys are catching all the b-roll shots and then what they do is they hire me to run the drone so i'm a certified faa drone pilot and um uh, I do all the drone work for them too, which is a, another prong in that prong of how to make a living. So, uh, in order to mm-hmm. kind of bring it all together, the drone stuff. Now, the drone is fun. I love it. Um, it is, I fly the DJI Air 2S. I have, I have several drones, but the Air 2S right now is like, you know, the best thing out there. And the video quality that comes out of it is astonishing. And so, um, and doing, and being able to fly it in a way, it's not like going fast. In fact, when you're doing drone stuff, the trick is to go slow and go even slower. So oftentimes I get the, the, uh, the guy who's kind of in charge of the whole thing, looking over my shoulder going, okay, go slower, slower. So, you know, that type of thing, because there's always somebody looking over your shoulder at the monitor while you're, sure. while you're flying. And, uh, so that's another prong on the whole thing is being able to do it. And, uh, just getting your drone pilot's license is, is, you know, I, I like that stuff. I like doing that type of thing. I like getting, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, spending the time and the effort, uh, to do that. So it, it's, it's, that's something that I'm going to, uh, that's a, one of my goals this year is get certified. And well, call me and I'll tell you, I got lots of things to tell you about that. Really? Yeah. Lots okay. to tell you about well, that. Good. Yeah. I most people, you know, most people, it's like a two to three week course um, that you do. And it's quite, it's, there's a lot to it. And then, um, uh, then you have to take the, you have to go into an FAA training station and um, take the test, take the test and pass it. And, uh, and you know, you can, about 500 bucks, you know, th- for the course and then the, the fee for taking the test mm-hmm. too. And so for about 500, you can, you can get your FAA uh, drone pilot's license. So it doesn't teach you how to fly. No, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, that's on your own. Man. Just where to fly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where and when you can fly. Where exactly. Yeah. yeah. How true. But it is, it's a new avenue and it's an, it's another niche because honestly, what you have to do in order to be a professional in this field is you have to find what's that thing that you can do that nobody else can do it because if you're just repeating what everybody else is doing you know it's going to be a tough road for you it's going to be it's not going to be easy you know because that's hard it's hard to and find what you're good at and what you like and then pursue that i listen to you guys your podcast all the time and you know i like listening to um uh, the, the guys and the gals who have found that niche the thing that makes them stand out and i like that that's pretty darn cool mm-hmm. Now, speaking of standing out, mm. you also have some aspects of your uh, your video recording that that are used for totally different purposes. Yeah, yeah. So I I work for another company again, another prong on that 
thing, uh, a company out of Los Angeles, and I provide them with long form video formatted. So this is 4K, 60 frames a second, C-log <clears throat> uh, footage of nature. So very relaxing, very calming, very soothing uh, video. So I, pro I provide them with these long form videos, not wildlife, of of um of these natural sounds and then in addition to that i provide them with long form audio recordings of those um kind of natural things whether it be you know wind in the trees or uh, a babbling brook or whatever it may be um and there's a lot of things once you start thinking about it um that i do so and i do these big long recordings for them too and then i ship those things to them in los angeles and you talk about crazy because you know some of the video files out of my atomos will be 110 120 gigs for one file just mm -hmm. one video file that I'm sending to them. And I'm usually sending them at least 10, you know? <laughs> so you're talking about massive, massive, you know, 110, 120 gig files. I mean, you're sending terabytes worth of information. So that all that stuff I have to do like for my home office uh, where I have a solid connection and it'll take me 24 to 30 hours of upload just to get that information up to them. So that's another one of those things that I do. And in fact, that's what I'm doing a lot on this trip right now is I'm doing a lot of that video and a lot of that audio to um, uh, for that company too. So one more thing <laughs> to do with right. all that. Mm -hmm. Now, the speaking of your audio, you've got, so yeah. we're recording this podcast on a Zoom recorder, which is, uh, it's a great tool in the field. Yeah. It doesn't take up much room in your kit. and it does pretty much everything you'd need it to do, right? Yeah. I'm kind of a fanboy of Zoom. <laughs> I like their stuff. I have three of the recordings recorders right here. Uh, I have the H4N, the H5, and the H6, and they are just fabulous recorders. They have excellent <clears throat> uh, floor noise. Uh, so in other words, if you were recording in a totally silent uh, area and you turn on the recorder, you're going to get a certain level of noise coming from the recorder itself. And, uh, these guys have very low uh, noise floors on them. And I, I love them. They're, they're amazing machines. They're compact. They're battery operated. They work well and they do exactly what I want them to do. And I, I enjoy them. I have probably, yeah, what, one, two, three, four, five, six to seven different microphones that I use for different situations. Mm -hmm. And those different microphones give you different qualities think of them as like different file formats for your you know your pictures uh and so each microphone will record that situation in a different way and one of my favorites is the uh the parabolic dish i use a parabolic dish a 22 inch parabolic dish to record i'll even use this for ambient uh recordings and it is does an amazing job and so and i use a you know a variety of sennheiser microphones that i place out and um, be able to record the Ambience, but if you think taking pictures is difficult or doing video is difficult, <laughs> try audio because it is so hard to get a good, clean recording because there's always something, you know, as you, as we mentioned at the top of this, we're, you know, we're here at a campground and I can, there's cars, there's people, dogs barking, you know, all that stuff. There's always something in that recording. And so when I'll do these 40 minute uh, audio recordings for this company in Los Angeles, I'll do, um, I'll do about an hour's worth of recording and then go back in and listen to it in real time and chop out, take out the, uh, kind of the, you know, jet flying over. I mean, believe it or not, a jet at 30,000 feet going over sounds like it's right next to you with these big microphones. So yeah, I have to 
cut out all that stuff and then be able to blend it back together when, you know, cause you have these gaps then and uh, blend that all back together. And that's kind of a trick in itself too. So it's mm -hmm. one more thing you got to be able to do, um, uh, in this whole scheme of how to make a living as a professional <laughs> wildlife guy. But when you're looking at video quality, video in and of itself, mm -hmm. the audio file or the audio that comes alongside and, and enhances that can make all the difference. Yeah. And when you're looking at, you know, we're always shooting with people. Right. So the parabolic mic that you have, and think of it, when we talk about the parabolic mic, think of it as that microphone you see at sporting events on the sidelines where it's it's pointed out it's like a it's like a dish yeah receiver dish. dish yeah this one's 22 and a half inches yeah and those specialized tools just give you the edge of cleaning yeah. up that audio yeah and, you know that, that's the thing like when audio is such an important part of this whole thing, when you're doing filmmaking, like if you, I always try to tell people, watch, you know, PBS Nature with the volume turned off, with the mute on. And, and it's interesting video, sure, but it's not that interesting without the sound. The sounds really make it. Mm. And you cannot do video and audio at the same time. It just doesn't work. Like you mentioned, you know, if you're shooting with somebody, you know, you're going to hear things. You're going to hear their camera. You're going to hear all sorts yeah. of things. So audio is very, very, it's a very difficult thing to do, but it's, you know, it, it's critical to get it right too. And it's almost always done separately and then dubbed in and added in after the fact too. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing that I do is I sell audio clips. So that's another kind of revenue stream, if you will. And, um, and sending, I'll do, um, you know, usually they're fairly short and, uh, it's usually very specific of a bird or a mammal or something along those lines. And, um, and so that's another thing you got to work on doing and getting out there and yeah. <laughs> just one more thing to do. So, yeah, but it, it is critical. I mean, you think about even the clip of, uh, you know, an orca breaching the surface just to, just to breathe. Mm -hmm. And just like you said you turn the audio off yeah it's it's still a beautiful image as they come to the surface and then yeah. submerge but then you add the audio onto that and you you can hear the blow yeah you hear actually breathing and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it brings it alive doesn't yep. it yep. and you hear the mm -hmm. you know the ripples of the water as it yeah breaks the surface and yeah. it does make a big difference and i think that definitely sets video apart for sure yeah it's um it's a critical part of video uh and the audio is just it, it, if you think it's difficult to get video uh, or pictures try audio man it is really 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 hard <laughs> to get and what so, kind of microphone do you use with the with the parabolic setup? so with my with the parabolic i run um right in here now i've got a stereo microphone so that's four microphones divided down the middle with a uh, solid barrier so that it picks up um with two microphones on the right side two microphones on the left side and so what what the dish does is it funnels down and effectively blocks out sound behind it and only the sound that's in front gets funneled into these side microphones and then i can record in stereo too because that's the other thing too is you have to record everything in stereo mm -hmm. and stereo is very imp uh, important uh, part of this whole thing so so yeah this it's it's well worth it i like this i like the audio part of it too it is something that i enjoy 
So let me ask you a question. What, what do you guys do for your software for audio? Um, a little bit ashamed to say that thus far I've used just the audio portion or audio editing capabilities of Final Cut and Premiere. Adobe. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, so do I, but there's, you know, I just was doing some research for the, the commercial work that I do. Uh, just doing some research and what kept coming up over and over and over again was uh, some free software. Now, is it ambiance? Or is it- I know I struggle with the name on this one all the time too. <laughs> I use it almost exclusively right now. It's the Audacity. Audacity. There oh my go. gosh. It's a free uh, kind of an open uh, source uh, software that you can download and I use the heck out of it. It, it's an amazing that this should be one of your pro tips uh, for sure. Well, it is right now. <laughs> okay. Now it is good. <laughs> so audacity is just this amazing software that um, it's very, very powerful. And it's got so many things built into it that you can do that you um, uh, filters are in there. Um, you can filter out background noise. You can um, cross blend clips together. It's just an amazing thing that I use it all the time. And uh, I almost use it exclusively at this point. Um, it really, really, really works well. And you can uh, save file formats in so many different ways too. So yeah, that's a, that's a great uh, software that uh, people can get for free. Yeah. And the, now how do you, you talked about chopping out those, uh, like the jet noises yeah, and things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dog barking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> talked about chopping out mm-hmm. those audacity help you with that. Yeah. Uh, what audacity does there is that I'll take out the, the piece that needs to be taken out and then you can select up like two seconds on either side of that hack, that chop and then cross blend the two clips together. And I, you, I dare you, you cannot hear that, that change. At all. A lot of times, if you just cut it out, almost always you can hear some kind of change in the background or some kind of change somewhere and you can hear that change. But when you blend those two clips together, seamless. You cannot hear the change at all. It's really, truly amazing. Hmm. Yeah. That's amazing for a, a free, free software. Especially in this day and age when everything costs right. so much. Yeah. Right. It's really a nice, uh, really nice software to have. Shouldn't give them too many props. They'll realize they could be charging for this. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's, uh, but audio is an interesting part of the whole wildlife field. A lot of, I think people overlook it and they don't understand it. And, um, but it's an extremely important part of, of what's doing it. It's something that I've always done. This dish I bought brand new, probably close to 30 years ago, mm-hmm. and I still use it. It's still kind of the workhorse and I love it, you know, and all the other microphones too, and all these recorders and things. Um, I mean, I upgrade my, my recorders, I had a bunch of field recorders. Um, I had HHB, which was, you know, like the best, uh, a recorder and, um, it stopped working and couldn't get it repaired anywhere. So, uh, I had all sorts of, I've, I still have a Morantz, uh, recorder that I uh, use as a field recorder, but I've, in the last, I don't know, five, 10 years, I've kind of switched over to these zooms and man, I, I just love them. I think they're great. They're easy. Um, you know, and they, they work well. So I'm very happy with the zooms. I really am. Yeah, they're great tools. They don't take much room in your kit and they're very diverse in, in what can be done with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they truly are. So, so Stan, I know what do you have on your plate next? 
Well, I'm going to finish up uh, this trip here. Um, going to be doing, um, this is kind of a, a, a multi-purpose trip. I'm doing things on my own, doing things for myself that I want to do because I still, after 40 years, still like getting out and doing things, you know, and still like capturing wildlife and whatnot. I'm doing these long-form video and audio on this trip here too. And then as soon as I get back, <clears throat> I'm going to be setting up and doing some video of, um, uh, believe it or not, Halloween themed, uh, long form video <laughs> and audio. This is what the company wants. And so what they want is what they get. And so yeah. I'll be getting back and do, and, and then doing that. Of course, um, with a uh, newspaper column due every two weeks, I'll be back and I'll be writing my, my column right away. And, uh, I've got several books that, um, I'm coming out with second and third editions on a bunch of books. So that's a revolving door that just constantly goes. The publisher is constantly sending me new books to edit and I'm sending in new material. That's just a nonstop keep going type of thing. And I, I really actually enjoy that part of it. I enjoy the process of, of writing the books, photographing for the books. That is really, it's unique and I, I enjoy it. It's one of those things where it's like, yeah, this feels good, you know, to be able to pull these things together. And, um, I think we talked a little bit about it, the, the, the difference in like my books and what a lot of people envision, uh, when they're talking about books uh, or publishing a book right now, a lot of people think of self-publishing. They think about uh, mm. an Amazon uh, book or, you know, they self-publish through something like that where they do the layout, the design, the uh, font, the, all those types of things. Uh, what I do is totally different. So I'm under contract for my books. I write them and I take the pictures and then I just turn in that raw material and then the publisher does all the layout, choosing the fonts, the, you know, the, the style, the look, the feel, that's all them. I move on to the next book. I start writing another book and I start photographing for the next book and move on from there. So that's kind of a big critical difference between, because a lot, you know, when I first started doing this, self-publishing a book was pretty impossible. Now, nowadays, self-publishing is really easy, mm -hmm. uh, which is great. Uh, but there's a big, big difference there. And the big difference is my publisher puts up all the money to print the book, ship the book, market the book, you know, sell it and all that stuff. So I get a small percentage of each book sales, <clears throat> excuse me, as opposed to if you self-publish, you put up all that money and then you have to do all that work. Also, you have to do the editing, you have to do the layout and, you know, choosing all those design things. And then the shipping and the selling is all on you. So there's a big, there's kind of a, a two different avenues to do the same exact thing. And I've just got one avenue and a lot of people go the other avenue. So, and, but you're getting, you know, when you self publish, when you sell that book, you get, you know, the lion's share of the profit comes back to you as opposed to when I do it, I get a small, small percentage on right. it. So, but for me, it's a numbers game. The more books you sell, the more you, you make. So the, and the publishers out there selling them and, and, you know, promoting them all the time. So that's a kind of a good, good and bad thing. It really works well. That's got to keep these trips busy. You know, oh, yeah. most of my middays, I'm taking a nap. <laughs> yeah, not me. <laughs> You're just moving on to the next project. Yeah, I'm either writing, I have to write my column, or I have to, you know, uh, there's something always going on to it. It's mm -hmm. juggling. It's a nonstop juggling act that I'm doing, trying to get it going and trying to keep things. And, and it's not easy. It's that balancing act of trying to keep it. Hence, the, there's no difference between my personal life and my professional life. They're literally the same exact thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so 
So there's that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So where can our listeners find you? Um, uh, website is just naturesmart.com. I'm also on Facebook and Instagram and, um, Twitter. So <clears throat> I'm not, <laughs> so this sounds terrible. I try to put out things, but, um, because Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter doesn't pay me anything. <laughs> right. It falls to the bottom of my priority list. And so therefore I'm, so as a, as a working professional, I don't have the time to do those things. I try, I put out things. I try to try to put something new, but a lot of times it's last minute types of things. And I, you know, I do whatever I can with it. I'm shamefully, you know, I hear you guys talking about this all the time and it makes me feel so good about how much time it takes to invest in that social media. I think it's a great thing to do, but it's a big time commitment. And I, as a working professional, I just don't have that time commitment. I wish I did. I would do more of it. I would post like crazy if I could, but I just don't have the time to do it. I would I'm love to. I'm definitely, well, I would have said I'm definitely the least active on mm -hmm. social media. <laughs> But uh, Michael's been <laughs> on assignment for several months now, mm -hmm. and so he's uh, the well's he's dry. Maybe overtaken me. Oh yeah, <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, it's a you know I I like the social media. I think it's very valuable and it's it's great. It's just it's hard you know when you're trying to make a living at this to keep up. Yeah, to yeah. keep up with it. Although I enjoy it, I like it. Um, and I certainly look at it now and then, you know, when I, when I get an opportunity, but it's, boy, yeah. it's, it's not easy. Well, I know you've got to get on the road, Stan, and yeah. I'm going to let you do that, but I greatly appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to visit with us and kind of share what you've got going on. And I, I think it does give some perspective for those that want to make this a profession to just how much work it can be. Yeah. And although we're all passionate about it, and this is what we would be doing if we weren't getting paid for it. Exactly. Um, it is a lot of work. Yeah, it is. And it, and that's where it, I wouldn't do this if it <clears throat> wasn't something that's been in me my whole life. It's right. just been something I've always wanted to do. And, and it's something I've worked really hard to get to this point. And um, so... I, I, I wouldn't do anything else. This is something where I want to do. Um, I would like to say though, that I really, I think your, your podcast, the wild and exposed podcast is just of all the thing that's out there. That's for me, like it's my go-to. I listen to it. I, I love hearing about other people and it, it makes me uh, kind of reaffirms what I'm struggling with all the time. I'm struggling with this, or I'm struggling with that. And then I hear you guys and your guests talking about it. And I think, gosh, I'm not the only one. Yeah. <laughs> this is great. I feel so much better about what I'm doing and what I'm trying to accomplish. And uh, like, you know, when the R5 came out, I was like, ah, you know, all the different settings and different, you know, a little bit struggling. And I heard you guys talking about that too. And I thought, oh, this is so good. And so, <laughs> so my hat's off to you guys. I think the Wild and Exposed, you guys are just incredible and keep up the good work. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. We greatly appreciate you listening and, and even more for taking the time to come on and visit with us today. Uh, well, it's been a dream of mine to be on your show. So thanks. I well, appreciate excellent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love to make dreams come true. Yeah, you're a dream, dream maker. <laughs> you got to dream bigger though. <laughs> yeah. Good. Well, you, you might have a point. <laughs> well, All either right. way, thanks, Ron. I really thanks appreciate a lot, it. Stan, yeah. and, and everybody make sure that you do go check out Nature Smart and Stan's work. And uh, if you get the opportunity to pick up your state's bird guide, 
now you know who yeah. is behind the scenes on that project. Thanks for listening to this this week's edition of Wild and Exposed Podcast. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed Podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in our way. We will be the biggest band in town.